This is Metrics and Chill, where you'll learn practical strategies to drive consistent and predictable growth. Hey everyone, in this bonus episode, Pete Caputa chats with Joe Sullivan, owner of Gorilla76, an industrial marketing agency focused on serving B2B manufacturers. You'll learn how and why Joe decided to niche down to a specific sector and the positive impact that's had on his business, how they accelerated growth post-COVID and the changes that were brought to the agency, how they maintain quality and client satisfaction by tailoring their services and only offering ones that they excel in, and how he and his team are driving sustainable business growth moving forward. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Databox's Metrics and Chill podcast today. Uh, I have Joe Sullivan here, uh, co-founder of Gorilla76, an industrial marketing agency. Did I get that right, Joe? Industrial marketing agency? Yep, that's how I would describe it. Cool. I think for those that maybe don't know that, that means that you work with companies that manufacture things for the most part. Is that right? Yeah, you got it. Kind of the B2B uh, American manufacturing is really kind of where we built our niche. Um, and Joe and I, unlike some of my other recent guests, Joe and I don't go back that long. So I don't have a lot of background on, on Joe, but we're going to, we did talk a few times now. Um, and I'm ex- really excited to tell Joe's story of, uh, how he built his marketing agency and how they made a decision to focus in on a niche and the kind of decisions they made after that in order to, uh, really build the business up. So, um, Joe, could you give us a little bit of an insight before we get into the meat here? of like what you guys do, how big you are, you know, when you started the company, that kind of stuff. Yeah, certainly. So we've been in business for a while now. I, you know, I co-founded the agency um, in 2006 with my business partner, John Franco. Uh, We were both 24 years old. We both, you know, kind of come from advertising backgrounds. I mean, in the short, the, the the limited background we had at that point, working in marketing agencies for a couple of years out of college, and um, but we we launched this firm as kind of a nights and weekends thing. We, you know, we're building a business uh, on the side, doing freelance work, and it didn't take too long before we were able to, you know, kind of realized, all right, we could make a lot more money doing this on our own. Um, you know, starting putting together a pretty traditional business plan at the time, and and um, you know, figured out how to how to get paid for a, a, enough of a runway that we could quit our job, survive and, and get this thing off the ground. And so it was 2008 when we launched. Um, we, since were, then, yeah, I, I would have been, uh, in, in 08, I would have been t- almost 26, I guess it was 25. Okay. So, um, yeah, just a few years into my, nice. my career, I guess. But, um, yeah, so we, so we, you know, it was just the two of us for about a year or so we were, um, bootstrapping it, working, you know, out of our, our, John out of his mom's basement. I don't know if I should say that out loud, but you know, that that's the truth. <laughs> I was living in an apartment with a, with a couple other guys splitting like, you know, pennies for rent, basically had no responsibilities in life. I'm married with three kids now and never mortgage to pay and a different story. But, um, you know, in an information business is like, I needed my brain and my computer and we could do this thing. So, but you know, we, it's been, yeah, it's, I started my first business in 2001. About the same age, so mm-hmm. a few, I got a few years on you. Yeah, uh, and uh, same same story. Living with a bunch of guys, my partners were all guys living with, living with living like living pretty frugally, right? And we all had jobs at the time. We'd meet nights and weekends. We yeah. code. So no, I can. I That's can awesome. That one, I didn't last as long as you. You you. So now you're going on, let's see, for seventeen years. 
of running the business? Yeah, it's been it's been it's been a little over seventeen years. Pretty pretty wild to think about, but um, yeah. yeah. So here we are. We've grown from the two of us to um, we're recruiting number thirty right now. So okay. you know, a bit kind of slow, steady growth over over a long period of time. But um, yeah. you know, we're going to get into some of that. Yeah, you you had mentioned like some more of that growth has happened. Like I think you said since COVID. I don't think COVID is the reason, but. But in the last few years, right? In the last three years, like where were you three years ago, headcount wise, roughly? Yeah. So uh, headed into the pandemic, um, you know, early 2020, um, we were 16 people, and we were all in St. Louis, which is where John and I, you know, have lived our adult lives, and um, we were uh, yeah, everybody was there. And we we thought we were innovative because we had work from home Wednesdays, um, and you know, but we were all there and um, in in one place, and it it. I, you know, I think the pandemic, not, not that I would, you know, say there, there was anything good, a good that, that, you know, about the pandemic, but you know, the, the changes that came out of it just in terms of technology adoption and, uh, and especially in a very traditional audience segment that we served in B2B American manufacturing, like, I don't know if I was ever on a zoom call or a, you know, any kind of video conference with a client prior to that. And now it's just, it's commonplace. Oh, wow. So it made, it made it a lot different for me. You know, you, Probably a lot of people listening here are from the SaaS world or, you know, more technically, technologically advanced, um, forward thinking organizations. I'm dealing with a lot of, you know, second, third generation family owned uh, manufacturing leaders have been doing things the same way for many, many years. And so it, it really kind of opened the the door to just working differently with my clients. People didn't expect me to come on site for sales meetings and when I get to jump on a plane and, you know, fly halfway across the country. Um, it allowed me to start hiring from different parts of the country, and that was okay for my clients to deal with people who weren't right there with them. Um, so I think a lot of it did, you know, accelerate as a result of just sort of a changing work environment. Right. It seems like it. So that's interesting. I I don't mm -hmm. think I've heard of anyone that had that drastic of a change where you mm -hmm. went you you doubled headcount basically from like sixteen to thirty in three years, and, and it's because your clients, one, had to adapt their marketing and sales strategy to be in a world where you don't see face-to-face because -face, most manufacturing companies do a lot of face-to-face -face business. They don't hesitate to get on planes, right? And so because they were switching the way they were maybe selling, they were more comfortable with, with buying that marketing services that way uh, and switched over. And then, of course, yeah, you could then have a, have a more global talent pool. And I think you had told me the other day when we talked that the um like you your team you've been able to hire people who have worked at manufacturing companies in marketing and sales and manufacturing companies which gives you uh, a team now of people who are can more easily understand your client's business is that right yeah yeah that's that's exactly right and, you know my, most of our people have come from a you know variety of different backgrounds and we actually really like that because it kind of brings different perspectives but yeah, it's been a real, real nice thing to to go out and hire people who have, you know, worn marketing um, director, marketing manager sorts of hats inside of the exact types of companies we serve. They speak the language better. They've walked the halls for many hours in those places, and um, it it just kind of yeah. help helps us keep building that niche deeper. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I told you this, but I'm, I have a chemical engineering degree, and then for the first six years out of college, I was a uh, product and sales engineer at uh, a manufacturing company, and so I would—I literally inherited like a a, a uh, file cabinet of folders with clients 
dating back like decades. And my job was to go and fly out to these accounts, test new products, and prove that our product was better than the competitors, more efficient or, or less expensive. And, uh, and so that world, I, I'm sure it's matured a bit in the 20 plus years, 25 years since I was in it, but like, it's, uh, it's a very traditional way of, of doing business, right? A lot more face-to-face, a lot more relationships, uh, and a lot long-term, uh, mm-hmm. uh, recurring sales, things like that. So a lot of account management involved as opposed to hundred percent selling to accounts and hoping that customers never call you. Um, so it's a different world, but it is very, so how did you guys get into that? So I think you told me you worked mm-hmm. at an agency, more of a, an, uh, like almost like a event marketing or promotional, uh, agency. I think you told me that you actually like would help set up, um, beer sampling events and things like that at this traditional agency you worked with out of school. So how did you go from that to, uh, uh, work in exclusively with manufacturing companies? Yeah. Great question. Um, you know, early on, I guess I, I the way I described it is it kind of happened by accident, um, at first, and then it became very intentional. And then we kind of went, went all in and, you know, it was early on my, my business partner, John and I was like, we'd, you know, when we were, we were doing this nights and weekends thing, working regular jobs all day, it was kind of taking whatever work we could find. And I can remember just getting referrals from family and friends of small businesses in the St. Louis area. Uh, where I went to college at Washington University in St. Louis, and they have a really great entrepreneurship program for the community. And there people come in and pitch, you know, almost like you're on Shark Tank, right? And and um, yeah. there was, I, I got a hold of the list of everybody who pitched, and I just reached out to every single person on that list. And I started, you know, getting a bunch of branding jobs. And it was kind of just figuring out how we could do it. But a few of our early clients were in kind of the construction world. And it was, I remember landing this one client, they'll always remember the day where it was, you know, they were a construction company that had like, you know, a GC, GC that did uh, commercial building. They had a, a home builder under their umbrella and a real estate developer. And they hired us to do, you know, three websites for all three of these companies. And it was like, we had hit the jackpot. I mean, it's work like we probably couldn't even touch today because it would have been so low margin, not enough. But at the time as a couple of 24 year old guys trying to figure this out, it was, it was what let us, you know, yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, exactly. And so, so we, so we found our way into the industrial sector kind of through construction, um, led to, you know, some manufacturing jobs. And then we kind of looked at the manufacturing landscape. We're like, you know, you look all along the supply chain and all these businesses and niches and sub niches that exist. And there was just unlimited opportunity and almost nobody's serving it. And so it was almost like an obvious thing for, for a small business without a little, without a lot of overhead to go in and be able to, right. you know, do really good work for companies who really needed it. And once we've had some success there, we just decided to own it. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. As you know, I'm a huge advocate of agencies focusing on a niche. Um, mm-hmm. uh, in my experience of interviewing agencies like yours, I find that you can grow faster and easier, more easily with less, less investment. Um, and then also end up being more profitable. Everybody that I know that's like gone into doing a niche, like they're just happier agency owners. Like there's less stress, like you have stressors, I'm sure, but there's less stress. It's like, you're not, you're not worrying about the same thing. Um, but what I find is that when I talk to an agency owner about it, there's a lot of apprehension around it, um, because they're afraid of turning away business and there's a there's almost a gap between like 
deciding that you're going to be focused on a niche because it does have to be kind of a decision. Uh, and then getting to the point where you have a big enough funnel uh, that you can maybe turn away other business. Because if you don't turn away other business at some point, then you just don't have capacity to take on the business that you do want. And so can you walk me through like when that was for you? It seems like maybe more than 10 years ago, but like when that was for you and how you kind of made that transition? Yeah, that's a really good question because I, I can remember that feeling of, you know, where we were kind of, we were clearly starting to develop a niche, but, you know, we had clients that were in, you know, they were, we had clients that were like the, the restaurant and the, the, you know, the barber shop down the street still, right? And then we had clients that yeah. were big construction companies and niche manufacturers. We had some that were professional services and, um, you know, companies doing in finance. And so we were still all over the place, but we were starting to get really good at working with, you know, certain types of B2B companies who had complex products, longer sales cycles, selling to committees of buyers. And like, there were these patterns that we could see among who we were, who really had a need and what we were good at doing. Um, and yeah. so we, we, I can remember having these discussions and we, we just really felt strongly like we could build a business there. We saw the opportunity out there, how underserved that space was. And so the, the way we did it is we decided to go all out in terms of our positioning to the outside world. And I think it might be a good place to start for other people who are thinking about this because I can remember, um, I can remember one of our advisors. Her name's Mitch Myers, and she was she owned a firm that was 250 people at one point. Um, they had like all the promotions work for Miller Beer, and and like an amazing person to be able to look up to and learn from. But she uh, she's had to say a very simple thing. She'd remind us of. She's like, you are the work that you do. If people see you as this, then that's what the work you're going to get. Like, and so. We had to position ourselves to the outside world as experts in B2B midsize um, you know, manufacturing. So despite the fact that we had other clients, I can remember talking to one of our clients that's actually still around today after all these years, uh, and they're a general contractor, construction company. We kind of pulled them to the background. I remember talking to that CMO there saying, hey, I don't want you to see this publicly and think we can't do business with you anymore um, just because we're talking about manufacturing, but this is where we're going to take our business. And so we had to, we stopped showcasing stuff in our portfolio of work that was outside that manufacturing niche. We talked about how we were manufacturing marketing experts. And as a result, this, the companies we started to attract started to resemble who we were positioned, you know, to reach. Okay. Got it. That's interesting. Cause I've, I've almost given up on, um, pushing that argument. Um, and I don't, it's not just agencies that have this problem. Um, actually in mm -hmm. my first startup, we built event management software. And I actually pitched it at like, sounds like a place like you did. I pitched it at my alma mater, WPI mm -hmm. it, up here in Massachusetts. And, uh, and the vet, there was a venture forum and they basically, there was a marketing expert on there. And she basically said, you, this is a stupid business model. You can't like do all these types of events. Cause we would do like a nightclub event and then like a networking event. And then I do a webinar for a business. And then, uh, I did home show and a concert, like, we did so many different types of events. She's like, you're never going to scale it. And I actually pushed back on her. I'm like, well, I, there's, there's so much opportunity. I wouldn't want to turn it away. Um, and like, if, if, if I think I had taken her advice, I'd probably be retired by now from that business. <laughs> Cause like, I know that business would have scaled if we focused. Um, and so I think a lot of entrepreneurs are like me, like I was where it's like, I can't turn that away, but you guys kind of, it sounds like you just like ripped the bandaid off and you said, screw it. 
Like we're we're going on. We're positioning. Did you change your homepage? Like started writing content exclusively for men. You just went for it. We we, we did right. go for it. Now I think I think it's a different situation if you're looking at you know if you're an agency owner and you're thinking about niching and you don't maybe have a ton of experience yeah. in the niche, but you see opportunity yeah. there. Like we did have experience with manufacturing. It's not like we had nothing there. Yeah. So we put we really just yeah yeah, and we had a stable customer base. We had a stable customer okay. base. We had manufacturing yeah. clients. Um, it's not like we were dying to get, like we were desperate to get to, you know, the, the new business situation was fine. So we knew there was going to be a period there though, where like it was, we would maybe decline a bit or maybe like, we'd, you know, we wouldn't grow as fast. Yeah. And then we, it was a risk we were willing to take, which made sense yeah. for us at that time. You know, it, was, it made was sense for our particular situation. Were you still living like with a bunch of dudes? And yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think I was no longer living with a bunch of dudes, maybe just myself at that point and engaged to my wife and not married yet. And But like it was, yeah, I mean, there was you know, there was still less less risk maybe be in life in general. Um, but I, I think we, we did it still with it's not like we were being I don't I don't believe we were, you know, we, we've never been like a reckless like sort of let's just let's just take this big chance. And if it works, it doesn't. We wanted to protect our, our business. Um, I got you. Okay, cool. All right. Um, and, and while we're on it, like, have you ever, um, I think another reason why businesses are afraid to niche and not just agencies, again, it's like all kinds of businesses is that if there's like a downturn in that niche, right. And like, we saw it with the mortgage crash in like 08, 09. Um, we certainly are seeing pullback right now on like SaaS marketing. Uh, the budgets aren't as crazy as they used to be. Um, and so I think there's times, right, when certain industries just like take a hit and pull back. And maybe you could make that argument that the whole world is doing that right now. But but have you ever have you ever had a situation where you're like, shit, we're too exposed to manufacturing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, another really good question. Um I think that risk is real for sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we've seen it in, in SaaS over the last year. I mean, there's, you can think of a couple of agencies that we look up to quite a bit that I know have struggled despite them being really well run agencies by, you know, being run by amazing people. Um, yeah. And, and it's, it's a real risk. I mean, you know, there's economists are, have been forecasting a, 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 a you know, recession in manufacturing for, you know, over the, over the, the months ahead into um, 2024, like we're, we realize that that, that could, you know, really impact our business. We've also like, you know, we've been doing this for 10, 12 years in this niche. We, we started our business in, in, you know, right in the middle of the great recession. Like we never knew anything good from the beginning. And so, um, but yeah, there, I think, there's by not being diversified. Yeah. There, I mean, there's, there's real risk there, but in our opinion, it's, it's outweighed by the benefit of niching down and becoming really true deep experts in something. And, and just, cause I think, I do think that if you can be the best or one of the very best in your niche, you can weather those storms um, because yeah, yeah, yeah. you're looked at as, as the experts and there are going to be companies who need experts during those times. Right. Yeah, no, no, that's fair. That's a good, that's a good pushback. All right. So let's talk about, um, the benefits. What would you say the benefits of, uh, have been in, in your decision, which you made 10 years ago now, but like looking back mm -hmm. now, you're 10 years into this decision, like what have been the benefits for you? Would you say? Yeah, for sure. Like, I, I mean, I think number, 
Yeah, yeah, kind of niching down into into manufacturing. I, I think the top benefit is um, the pattern matching that you can start to do once you have worked yep. with a lot of companies that have similarities in terms of how they go to market, in terms of you know how the types of customers they deal with, in terms of the challenges they have in their own business development processes. Um, when we, we see that, you know, we could be talking to two very different, you know, some kind of medical device manufacturer. And then over here, it's, you know, somebody in somewhere along the supply chain in automotive, completely different companies yeah. serving completely different audiences, but they're dealing with a lot of the same problems. They're the way they need to talk to customers has a lot of similarities. And so when you start to see that time and time again, and you see the patterns and you, you know, what kind of solutions start to work there. Now you can really develop a focused methodology that you can apply in different scenarios. You know, I heard um, there's some some people listening may be familiar with David C. Baker, agency advisor, who we, we've been following yeah. for many years. But um, you know, David Baker is he had an email out in the, in the last week, I think, too, that he you know he talked about having a toolbox. You've got a toolbox, and there's a defined toolbox, and the tools you pull out of that might be a little bit different or a different combination of them for different clients of yours, but when you can come with the same toolbox that you're really familiar with, um, you know, you can be that much more successful than if you're just trying to do a bunch of different kinds of stuff for different types of companies. So I think number one benefit, I'll, I'll pause here for a second, but number one benefit I think is the pattern matching you can do when you start to see companies that all look very similar. Yes. And that's a very David Steve Baker terminology, pattern yeah. matching. Have you read have you read his book, The Secret Tradecraft of Elite Advisors? Have you read that one yet? It's his newest book. I'm in the middle of it. Yeah. I haven't I haven't read it all the way through. His last book, The Business of Expertise, is like a handbook for half the things I do, I feel like, at this point as an agency owner. But I love his stuff. Yeah. I, listen, I think I've listened to every one of his and Blair Enns' podcasts probably multiple times over. So, yeah. yeah. Hey, just a quick interruption. In past episodes, you've heard guests give advice like, the first step is just like actually measuring and monitoring, right? Which sounds very fundamental, but a lot of companies don't even do that, right? If you ask for like, hey, do you have a monthly kind of report of like what's happening in the funnel? It's like, oh, well, we have this over here and we have this over here and we have the traffic data and GA. So the first thing I think is like build out, you know, a presentation uh, that you're updating every single month. Or it's way easier if you have all this stuff being centralized somewhere and can look at it. And I promise that's completely unprompted. We try to book smart B2B leaders and learn how they're driving more predictable growth, and they end up sharing advice like that. And Databox makes it easy to do all of that and more. You can track your marketing, sales, revenue, and CS performance all in one place. It lets you build custom dashboards and view metrics from over 80 tools side by side. You can schedule PDF reports that automatically update your data in real time and send to your team or your clients. You can even set up custom Slack alerts that alert you when you hit your goals or when numbers spike or dip. If you want to try it totally free, just go to databox.com or click the link in the show notes. Okay, back to the episode. Yeah, you know, and I... It over the years, I've gotten to strike a uh, relationship with David. Um, we met years back when I was at HubSpot and had dinner. And uh, he's always been uh, kind of a step or two ahead in terms of the thinking. Yeah. Uh, so good inspiration for me and how I build things. A huge admirer of his. Um, in With the business of expertise, what would you say? You said it's your handbook. So what would be like one, two mm. things 
there that you kind of took from that book that you've applied in your business? Yeah, great question. Um, one thing that was validation for something that we were, we had kind of just probably started to do before we read that book. And it was complete, I remember doing complete validation that, yeah, we're, we're making the right move here. Is it, maybe you can picture that there was that graphic he drew and there were the two rooms and there was one that was strategy and one was implementation. And, and his, you know, I think his perspective has changed a little bit maybe over the last few years, but for the most part, it's, it's been, you know, his, his, um, the, the way he advocates for starting with a client is you let somebody in through the strategy door only first before you let them move into the implementation room. And you know, so, so something we've been doing and refining over the last four or five years is a road mapping process that is sort of a required starting point for anybody. Like we want to uh, be the expert problem solver for them to do the discovery work, to figure out what the plan is going to be before we're going to start implementing anything. And so I think a lot of his teachings around that and Blair ends as well has really influenced the way we've thought about how to work with, um, with our customers. Got it. And do you think you'd be able to do that as well or as efficiently if, if you weren't focused in on manufacturing? That's I think it would be harder to do. I mean, I think it would be harder to do it. You know, I think one other consideration here is I think niching can mean a lot of things because we talk to our own customers about this. Yeah. Our, our, our clients, because you know, something we do really well and, and one of our core services is really positioning, right? We help our client, our manufacturing clients position themselves to their, their markets. And sometimes, you know, making decisions about where to niche down, where to focus, um, it doesn't have to be an industry vertical based positioning, right? It could be a horizontal positioning where it's, you know, you're, you're targeting operations engineers who are experiencing these types of problems at companies who are, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. And that could be across different verticals. Um, you know, it could mean, and I, I guess it could mean a, a lot of different things. And so I think that regardless of how, how you niche down, um, I think that having that kind of focus and being, you know, being focused on a type of company or a type of persona lets you do that consulting element of it up front or that strategy building element that much better again because you've seen companies who look like that or people who are having these problems you can relate to them you know how to how to solve for those issues that those people right. have and you've got social proof over time you start to build social proof that makes it that much easier to start those conversations and build trust with them as well yeah so it goes back to the pattern matching you you can see patterns across manufacturing that might not be present if you are working at, or you might not even observe if you're working with, you know, accounting firm, you're, you have an accounting firm client and a SaaS client and then a manufacturing client and then, you know, a, a consulting firm over there and a local business down the street, whatever, like you're not going to be able to ask the same questions. But if you're talking manufacturing, like you can ask, hey, what percentage of your business goes through retail distribution or direct, right? Like that's 100%. Has to is constantly thinking about, and if you're a generic marketing agency, you might not even think to ask that question alone, let alone know how know that you should ask that question, right? Hundred percent, and that's actually a great example that you just used there because that's what I'll, I'll have somebody, I'll be on a call, a discovery call, so first call with somebody, and like, well, here's the thing about our business: we're see, we we work with these distributors and blah 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 blah, and I sit there and I listen and I don't say anything, and then I just come back to them with. 
I've got five clients over here who have that same model. They're selling through distribution, but they need to get to the end user too because we need to build demand there. So the end users then, you know, talk about you to their distribution. And so it's, it's all those kinds of things. And all of a sudden people hear you, they hear you talking about it and, they're, right. and, and it's proof. Like, okay, Gorilla has seen this stuff before. This is nothing, you know, they're not sitting there like, okay, interesting problem. I mean, we've seen that right. many, many times, right? So, yeah. Right, right. exactly. Uh, all right. So talk to us a little bit about the services that you do offer, um, because when we were talking, you and I were talking, I observed something distinct, which I don't want to point mm -hmm. out until you explain the services, but there's a difference in the way you, in what services you offer and kind of the sequence in which you offer them that, that is somewhat standardized, I think, compared to most mm -hmm. other agencies. Uh, so, but walk us through the services that you're offering, typical services you're offering process. Sure. So we start in the same place with everybody. Um, we go through a road mapping process. We have a defined price point for that. Um, charge the same amount, do it the same way, regardless of whether it's a $2 million company or a billion dollar company, just always start the same way. Um, yeah. the, the purpose of that's to get the plan in place and to have enough done enough research to be confident that this plan is going to work. Right. So we, then we move from that into implementation Usually the first piece of implementation across any client is, you know, we've, we've given it a name. We call it uh, go-to-market messaging strategy. And, you know, it consists of doing customer interviews, uh, working with the client to craft the right brand narrative um, after, you know, pulling insights from all those customer interviews and then building out, you know, their actual content plan, uh, kind of outlining what the content plan is going to be. So you get all that in place. Now it's creating the most essential content. So now we're actually creating a base of content that will not sit on their website collecting dust and waiting for people for Google to send people to it, but it's it's built to be used proactively in campaigning, which is the next thing we do, right? And then it move then we move into kind of a combination of demand capture, demand generation campaigns where um we are out there doing the work to target the 80,000 people that fit the ideal customer profile and make sure we are in front of them with that messaging and that content at the right frequency, um, at scale so that we can start to build trust and, and, um, and, and awareness for, for our client. And then it kind of interwoven with all that is just kind of the, the, the reporting and strategy calls that we conduct, but we kind of go in all those, we, we, we have a very defined methodology we use. We, we stay in our lane. Um, you know, there are there are lots of nuance to those the, those things we do there, but you know we stay away from e-commerce. We stay for the most part away from any kind of heavy email marketing. We help our clients find partners that are true experts in the other things that that we are not truly experts in doing. Got it. And so so if I get to recap that, so you do a roadmap, which is a strategy thing, and you're collaborating with the client prospect to figure mm -hmm. out you charge for that. It sounds like the same price. That's a David, another David C. Baker thing is standardize your, mm -hmm. standardize your offering, standardize your pricing. Uh, and then, uh, and then from there you're going into cre creating the, uh, actual content. Right. And, and mm -hmm. then, and then it's about how do you get that content in front of the right people? Um, mm -hmm. you mentioned demand gen, demand capture. Um, it sounds to me like you might be doing a little bit of like, uh, what some people would call demand creation where you're. Um, taking that content and putting it on, say, uh, Facebook platform or LinkedIn's platform through the ad platform where you're targeting the ICP, mm -hmm. uh, ideal client prof profile of of your client, um, and that's helping to 
attract people, get people to check out the content and convert. Is that right? Did I get that? Yeah, that's pretty well, pretty well summarized. Okay. Yeah. Got it. And so you said you stick to your lane. Um, yeah. And, um, I think that's something that most agencies struggle with. Uh, I think they tend to, not only do they try to be all things to all types of companies, but I think they, they try to, um, offer whatever services their existing clients ask for. Uh, and it sounds like you guys have avoided that, um, but still feel very, I'm guessing very comfortable in retaining your clients. So like, talk to me through that. Like, how do you, how do you balance those two things where you're, you want to maintain control or I shouldn't say maintain control, but like you want to maintain those client relations as long as you can continue to have value. Mm -hmm. uh, but you, you're not, you know, you're not say, maybe you're not doing that. I don't know what your experience is with, I know you do build some websites, but maybe you're, they come to you and say like, we need to do a Drupal website, but you don't have capabilities to do Drupal, Drupal and make mm -hmm. you do, but like just try to come up with an example. And so in that scenario, you would bring a Drupal expert in, in to help, right? And am I getting that right? Yeah, I mean, pr pretty well said there. I, th I think that something that maybe a lot of agency owners may fear, um, I suspect, because it's something I feared early on, was if we said, no, that's not really something we can do for you, that we'd chase yeah. away the opportunity because, yeah. you know, the assumptions being made that every client needs an agency to do everything for them. What, what I've yeah. learned to be true over the years, at least through my own experiences, is that the client values somebody who can help them figure out how to get to the solution or the outcome they're trying to get to. And if I can position myself and my agency as the expert advisor, to steal a David Baker term, right, that um, the advisor who can help them figure out how to get to the outcome they want to get to, I don't have to be the one doing everything. It doesn't matter. Um, they're going to trust my advice. And especially if I can help them bring, bring them someone who is an expert and that revenue doesn't wind up in my pocket, it just builds that much more trust because, you know, most agency owners will say, yeah, we can, we'll figure out how to do that. We can, or we, we can do it. And then they go figure out how to do it. Right. And there's something to be said for that too. Right. But in our, in our opinion, I, I want to bring back work to my team that we can crush. We know we can do it. We've done it before. We can deliver results there. I'm not going to cause all kinds of chaos that's going to lead to dissent among my employees um, because we've got stuff we do really well and we can be the advisor to the client on the other stuff. We don't have to physically do it. Got it. Got it. I should ask, like, are most of your client engagements, are they recurring revenue, like a retainer? How do you usually bill? Yeah, we, we come out of the gate with some project work, like the roadmap and kind of doing the positioning work, building a base of content. And then we move into uh, more of a retainer model when we're into campaigns. But the way we do it is we, we, we killed the long-term contract uh, as of a, a year or two yeah. ago. Was, there's no sign a 12-month contract with us. It's you give us 30 days notice if you want to stop. But going into this, you, you highly recommend you give it six months um, in, in most cases, you know, give or take some. Yeah. Uh, because there's got there's a runway, right? And so we're, we've one thing that I think yeah. I wish I had gotten better about years ago, and you know maybe we've 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 gotten a lot better about it the last few years is just setting very clear expectations on well, how long it's going to take, what are things we're looking, what are the signals we're looking for along the way. Um, but yeah. but yes, to come back to your question, um, it we move into more of a, a recurring revenue model once we move out of about the first six or seven months, typically. Oh wow, okay. And does that include the creation of content or just the running of campaigns to get the content in front of people? 
kind of depends on the engagement, but for most clients, we're, we're baking in some ongoing content creation. We, we like to come out of the gate with a base of content. Might be you know, a few product videos, some, some blog posts, some case studies, and some landing pages that will set us up with the assets we need to go to, go to market with. And we could make use of those things for six, 12 months in a lot of cases, but then we'll infuse new content kind of as we go. Okay. Got it. Cool. All right. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's switch gears a little bit. It seems to me, just to summarize a little bit, but it seems to me you've picked that market a while ago. It was a good decision for you. It's largely worked out, really accelerated during COVID. And um, it also allows you to like stay in your lane, get really good at certain things, very specific Mm -hmm. things. You have a process instead of just like, a menu of services, you have a process that you follow, which I'm, allows you to be efficient, allows your team to crush it, as you said, um, crush the work. Um, but so now you have this baseline, you've kind of like built your manufacturing plant to borrow a little phrase, right? It's like, now how are you marketing your business? What are you doing? Because Yeah, doing that's been, so, yeah. thank you. I appreciate that. that that's been probably the, the funnest part of, of my job over especially the last few years, but Really, always. I mean, I'm a marketer at heart, and um, to to be the one in charge of marketing for my company has been a lot of fun. Um, you know, ten years ago, we we were writing a lot of content for manufacturers about marketing. Like we've been, we, we've we've always been about educate. We've always been all in on content marketing, um, but it was a lot of written content. I can remember back in probably 2016, 2017. I did kind of a word count on everything I'd written. I had written over 50,000 words of content myself personally over the course of about a year and a half or two years, which is almost like a small business book, right? But it was all in the form of blog content. Um, And and back then, that was great. We we were winning in SEO. We were, um, you know, people were referencing our content. We had a lot of newsletters, subscribers that we we were building. And it gave us a good base for, you know, understanding what impact content could have, but you know, it, it, this, everything became more crowded. Um, you know, it became harder to win that game, and then podcasting came along, right? And so, I launched the Manufacturing Executive about three years ago, which was my podcast where I interview manufacturing leaders. This is not my expertise. This is me putting the spotlight on them, kind of like you're doing with me right now, right? And um, we, we, I've been running 170 straight weeks now on on that podcast. And that's changed the game for us. Honestly, it's uh, put it's put um, putting me next to manufacturing leaders that otherwise would never pick up the phone for a marketing agency owner has opened all kinds of doors. I've been put on lists of manufacturing influencers, and I'm sitting here like, dude, I'm a I'm a marketing agency. If you want to put me on that list, I am all good with that. But uh, it's so so it further embedded me and and brought me all this additional visibility in front of my audience. So then we said, okay, podcasters. Podcasting's working, so we launched a second podcast. But now it's my strategists um, sharing our expertise, teaching marketing. We turned it into a live show called Industrial Marketing Live that runs every other week, and now we have ninety, hundred people show up every other week. We've never once that's on either of those places. Not, that's not guest driven. That's like them saying, "Hey, we're that's them." The teach it. Okay, got it. And they teach, and they bring people up on stage during the live sessions, and then we spit that out as a podcast. And that in neither place have we ever pitched once uh, a client. But this is where our this is where our business is coming from now. It's almost and then side by side with all that, um, we have well, we launched a third podcast, which is a different persona. We keep going by persona for our audience, right? So we now we've got one for the CEO, we've got one for the marketer, we got one for the HR professional. 
Um, but we've, in addition to, I guess, everything that's going on there, I probably have about nine or 10 people on my team of 30 that are publishing unique, you know, content for our audience on LinkedIn, probably three to five times a week. Almost every inquiry that comes in through our site, you know, our, our HubSpot data will tell us things like organic search, right? And it's, or direct traffic. And we look at where people came in through, you know, what, what page did they land on first on our site? And it'll be our homepage, not because they searched for industrial marketing, but because they searched for Gorilla 76, because they knew who we were, because they've been attending industrial marketing live for two years, or they've been listening to my podcast for, you know, six months or or whatever it is. So we always ask that question. We stole this one from, yeah, this was the refined labs, like question that, that, you know, Chris Walker talks about all the time, like ask the question. How did you hear about us? It's such a simple thing. But when I, we look at those on our, on our um, form fills on our, our site, almost every single qualified lead we generate, um, regardless of how HubSpot tells us they showed up, it's LinkedIn or podcast or Grace Wright's LinkedIn or Brendan Forrest's LinkedIn, or I've been listening to you know the manufacturing market or I've been attending Industrial Marketing Live. Like Almost every single one of our good leads are coming from there. And so it's validation that the work we're putting in to build out these media platforms and these community um, events are, are the thing that is is building our, our awareness and trust with the right people. And that, again, is just a case for everything you you stand for, which is you build a niche, you become the experts for those specific people, and you just keep going all in bit by bit by bit. Right, right. And I think the, the other thing I talk a lot about is like, collaborating with your audience to create content. And so you're doing that. I can see on your LinkedIn profile, mm-hmm. like you're asking questions and responding to people. Like, you know, with your podcast, you're inviting people who could be potential clients or at least um, are are followed by your potential clients as well, right? And so some of those could turn them directly to clients or they could influence them, right? As uh, influence someone who would be a client. So you're by collaborating with your audience, you're learning from them. You're learning because you'd never run a manufacturing plant or even a manufacturing company. And so you're learning from them, but you're all, and you're kind of associating yourself with them as an expert for, in manufacturing marketing. As you learn more from all your guests over a three year period, um, they see you now as an expert, which gets you on that list. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I've received a, I've, I've, on a couple occasions throughout the years, mostly people are friendly to each other in this space, but I've received some, some criticism from some other agency owners who are specialized in manufacturing that, well, you know, Joe's not an engineer. He never worked. He was never a machinist. You're right. I wasn't. I, I came up as a marketing guy and I found my way into this niche, but I've worked with, at this point, hundreds of manufacturers. I've talked to 170 manufacturing leaders in 170 weeks for a half hour, 45 minutes. I've been inside so many facilities. And so I think, yeah, the, the idea of creating content with your audience, like my podcast has been the best possible market research I could ever do. I'm talking to the exact people I want to reach and hearing directly from their mouths what matter to them. Um, there's, there's really nothing better I could do to learn about the people that I need to reach and influence. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think too many marketing agencies, especially the ones that don't focus on an edge, what they end up doing is going off in a room writing down what they've learned is like a how-to article, right? They publish mm-hmm. that. and But the problem is there's 500 other how-to articles on that same topic. And there's no, there's no real, they're not, they're not really seeing patterns. They're not really observing. They're not customizing that content to the market that, a market that they could be serving. And so 
by you doing all of those things together, um, that's what seems to be working for you. Um, you mentioned uh, in our call the other day that you um, have a wait list of clients at this point. Like you have a certain amount of capacity that you know your team can handle uh, and you're because you're focused and because your marketing's working so well that you actually are like scheduling clients out. Like, can, can you share, can you share where you're at with that? Yeah. So, you know, we, we've been really careful about trying not to grow too fast. And, th and that sounds crazy. I know to some people we talk to, um, but you know, I, I have the good fortune of having a business partner, John Franco, who has, you know, we, we, I, I stay in, in my lane for the most part of marketing and sales for Gorilla. John runs the people side of our business and um, you know, his number one job is like, we, we got to find the best people. We got to treat them well. We got to make them love this place. We got to retain them. And, you know, in, in periods of fast growth throughout all the years, it's, it's when things become chaotic and we watch our, you know, employee net promoter scores just plummet. Um, you know, we get direct feedback from people that they're overwhelmed. We see, you know, it in the hours people are putting in. Um, and so we, it's, it's really hard sometimes to find the balance between, um, you know, people are knocking on your door, wanting to work with you and ready to write a check. And we've got a team that's going to be really overwhelmed when we say yes to, you know, three companies next week who want to start working with us. And so we kind of came to a conclusion, my senior leadership team on what we can handle. And we, we built that out for ourselves. We can onboard a new client every so many weeks max and, yeah. Um, and, and so we've, we've kind of built that schedule out and we're scheduling our roadmaps accordingly. And we've, this is a new problem for us. This is something that, um, you know, it's a good business problem to have, but it's still a business problem. Right. But yeah, we're, it's right now we're recording this podcast on September 25th. The next company that says, I want to do a roadmap with you. We're going to be telling them we can do it in January to start implementation in February. So we're, we're a good four plus months out at this point. And we've lost, we've lost at least one client that probably would have hired us. I, I know that for sure. And this is something we're working through. It's not going to be this way forever, but it's, yeah. um, it's, it's something we're, we're, we're dealing with and, and working through. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're a professional services firm, which is uh, historically lower margins. Uh, I think because you're focused and because both in terms of your, your market as well as the, what services you do and don't deliver, my guess is that your margins are higher than normal for an agency, but you still are funding your own growth, right? You're not, you know, you're not funded. You know, and so you, you have to balance hiring with client acquisition, uh, as you, right. And that sounds like that's what you're doing. And I think you're in a very enviable position, uh, in that you're able to say, Hey, yeah, we can start, but not till this time. Right. So as long as you can keep that up, there's really no downside. You might lose a client here or there, but, uh, they'll come back around well, or you'll have another. It doesn't really matter. You know, I think it, it, it lets you make decisions. If you can get into a position where that's the case and, and um, you know, not to say not to say there should be this power struggle between client and, and agency owner, but, you know, when, when we can say, listen, this is what we charge. You know, I had a client recently try to negotiate price and I said, I, I just, I, I'm not really willing to budge on that. We can work with you on if the total investment is too much and let's rescope accordingly. But it lets you say things like that and feel okay about it and let a client walk. If they just can't pay, it's going to let us raise prices when we think that the, you know, the timing's right for that. It's going to let us make decisions about further, you know, American manufacturing sounds like a niche to some people listening. It's not a niche. There are, you know, 
tens of thousands of, of companies out there that we could do business with. And we can hone in even further and start looking at more you know, psych- psychographic factors like mindset of CEO and how engaged they are versus just it's a manufacturing organization in the US with 200 to 500 people and this level of revenue or whatever. So I think the decisions that it lets you start to make can be really powerful to even help you get to the next level. Got it. Have you actually, have you considered, since you brought it up, have you considered niching further? Because I always mm-hmm. I have a joke. It's, it's only, only works for an inside crowd, but like I I'll, mm-hmm. often I'll ask an agency, like what markets do you focus on? And they'll usually say, oh, we focus exclusively on manufacturing, professional services, and software and technology, right? Like, so they'll say that I'm like, so my joke is like, that's 80% of the freaking economy, right? Even manufacturing right. is a real thing. We're B2B, right? We're, we're B2B. <laughs> it's just crazy what they're saying is that they do B2B. Yeah. Uh, unless yeah. like a really good e-com client comes along that can help with them too. Of course. But, um, but, uh, but have you considered yeah. niching down further, like into like manufacturers yeah. at some retail or like, have you guys done anything there? We have, yeah, we and we 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 have niched down further over the years. We we actually publish a page. This is something I would recommend to anybody out there, honestly, especially as you start to niche. Put a page on your site that's called "Our Ideal Client," uh, and just you know do the exercise to figure out what those characteristics really are. Some of them are probably firmographic, demographic sort of characteristics. Other things maybe you know more psychographic or you know, mindset. You know, companies willing to do X, Y, or Z or have a, a leader who is going to be engaged in the process or whatever that looks like. We have, uh, you know, again, it's pattern matching, right? We've seen the things that make a good client and make a bad client. We look for those flags early on. And th- that page is also a sales page for me. It helps when people, ident- when they look down the list of seven or eight bullet points, they're like, yep, that's me. Yep, that's me. Yeah, this one kind of, but yep, yep, yep. You know, when they can identify with 75% of the things on the page, they're like, I read your ideal client page and that is us to a T, right? And it, it makes them want you that much more, but it also sets expectations for like, well, you know, we were only four of the eight bullet points here. Do you think we're a good fit? And then that creates a really good conversation early on. So yes, we have continued to niche. We will, we will continue to niche more and more and more, and we'll continue to reflect that publicly in our positioning. Got it. What are the seven, eight? I'm curious. You have them off the top of your head? I probably can't name them exactly, but the things are, you know, midsize, B2B, manufacturer, um, you know, doing the, the, where their customer base is is North America, English speaking. You know, um, North America mostly is is who we're going to be best at helping. Um, you know, companies that probably do ten to two hundred million a year in in revenue. Um, we can measure it on headcount too, I guess. But we usually speak in terms of, of revenue. You know, in terms of their size. You know, we want a CEO or president or owner who's going to be at least engaged in the strategic side of this. If we're just talking to a 25-year-old marketing manager inside that company and the CEO is in the background, that's an immediate red flag. Like we want the, the leader, because it's got to come from the top down when you're implementing a marketing program in terms of, of getting um, buy-in. So you know, that's a piece of it. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of, of what else fits it. Like companies that are selling you know, big you know, CapEx, um, you know, large uh, big ticket items to committees of buyers through often long sales cycle where it's a knowledge-based sale where if you, you know, all the marketers listening right now, you could think of like how that translates to content marketing and educating your audience, which is something yeah. that is key to what we're good at doing. So nurturing. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yep. Yep, exactly. So those are those are a lot of the main things we're looking for um, where we we find, you know, there's always some outliers, right? I got a client that's a steel pipe distributor and they, you know, it, it's can you get me what I need tomorrow cheaper than the other guy? We can still help them win, but it, you know, there's less we can do for them that's really differentiated in terms of like what we do well versus say other agencies. So we want to kind of focus our outward facing positioning on who the the perfect fit client is and then make decisions from there. Cool. Awesome. Awesome. It sounds like, I think you referenced uh, that you're the marketing sales guy. Your partner is the, mm-hmm. the people, the people guy. It sounds like you might be a entrepreneurial operating system uh, company. We are. The US. Yeah. We, we, uh, we are. It's, we're coming up on about three years here running EOS and it, it's been, it's been a game changer for us. Yeah. How so? Uh, it's just created, helped us create so much focus. I think building out like, you know, the accountability chart within our company, um, helping us, you know, figure out where to make investments in people, how to delegate. Um, and we were a very flat organization before we started running EOS and it's let us, um, you know, hand responsibilities, build a senior leadership team, let them be entrepreneurs within our own organization. Um, and empowering people that way has, uh, it, it's helped a ton with retention because people know what they're responsible for. They own it. They build processes for, for their people. It's helped us stay focused for anybody listening who's familiar, having having annual goals. And from that, you decide what your quarterly rocks are and everything's focused on getting to the annual goal and the annual goals focus on getting to you know the three-year picture. So you're you're just breaking down everything you do to work towards the next bigger goal. So We've just, you know, I think there are a lot of people look at EOS and some of the terminology and they're like, ah, this is kind of cheesy and utopian, but man, it gives you some structure for, um, you know, throw away the terminology if you want and just follow the process. And and it keeps everybody kind of just going in the same direction, focused on the right things, eliminating all the fluff that, you know, you could be doing, but you don't need to be doing. And it frees you up as a founder to do the stuff that you're good at, right? And the stuff that you- 100%. Yeah, that's awesome. For sure. Cool. Uh, any parting words of advice on uh, running running a business effectively and scaling it up like you have? <laughs> I mean, I I love your you know the the theme that you're going for across the, this show is just the idea of of creating some focus and niching down. And again, I think I said it earlier, but to me, niching down can it doesn't have to be an industry vertical. It could be a persona based. Um, you know, segmentation or, or decision about where to focus. But you, I think I really do. I'm a big believer for our own clients, for ourselves, for other agency owners that creating some focus um, will allow you to really become an expert in something and, and identify those patterns. And so I'm a big advocate for it. I was excited when you asked me to come on because I think we're we're running on the same wavelength there in terms of our, our philosophy about, you know, how to make those decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I've been following you for a while. I've heard about you from other people and I've observed you and yeah, it, I think when, when I can't remember when we why we connected initially, but but like I think we immediately spoke the same language. I told you what I admired about what you're doing, and it was like, yeah, that's right. So um, thank you, Joe, for joining me uh, on on our podcast and sharing very openly about your strategy and how you got here. And um, congratulations on your success. And I look forward to uh, to uh, uh, following you as you continue to scale up. Uh, Thanks, Pete. Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity. 
Thanks so much for listening. If you found this episode valuable, check out our other episodes or subscribe to get new ones. If you want to support the show, we'd love for you to leave a review or share it with someone. And if you want a tool to help you track and improve your business performance, try Databox free at databox.com.